0: TheYeshiva.net We're going to learn together today, Be'ez Hashem, one of those incredibly perplexing, challenging, intriguing, difficult, disturbing stories in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, Judges chapter 11. The book of Sheftim, Perik Yud Aleph, which happens to be also the Haftarah, that was chosen for Parshas Chukas, when Parshas Chukas is read independently, and it's also connected to one of the stories in Parshas Balak and Parshas Pinchas, as we will see as we move on with this story. It's the only time in the whole Tanakh we find a Jewish leader, a Jewish judge, engaging in what appears as human child sacrifice. And the lessons today are vital, even if we live millennia later and in such a different milieu and climate in so many untold ways. This is the story of a man known as Yiftach. Yiftach comes from a place in the Holy Land called Gilad, it's really in the transjordan which is the eastern side of the jordan in the territory of the tribe of manasseh so it's not technically the eretz isra'el the holy land on the west of the jordan but it was the part that was bequeathed to some of the tribes of israel on the transjordan on the eastern side of the jordan of the jordan river it belongs to this tribe of manasseh because the transjordan was inherited by tribe of Reuven, by the tribe of God, and by half the tribe of Manasseh, as discussed later in Parshish Matos. Yiftach was an illegitimate child of a, of a Zoina of a harlot. His half-brothers, who were legitimate sons of Yiftach's father, expel Yiftach from their home. Yiftach is not raised in a home, in an environment of stability, of peace, with good role role models. He, now an outcast, goes to live in the land that the Tanakh calls the land of Toiv, which means the land of good, but the name was the land of Toiv. He's an outcast of his community, of his family. He builds himself a name as a mighty, powerful warrior surrounded by a gang of uh, what you might call raking brute peasants. But then his life takes a dramatic and transformative turn as he's begged by the Israelite leaders to come lead them, win a battle against the oppressing tribe of the Amoinim, of the Ammonites. The Ammonites were subjugating the Jews from the east. 18 years, the Ammonites were killing Jews and no Jew could stand up to these tyrants, to the fierce enemy. The Jews cast their eyes and their hope in Yiftach, who became known as this warrior, he might save them. Yiftach is still pained over his expulsion during his youth. He doesn't want to cooperate with them until they promise him to appoint him as their leader. Yiftach indeed mobilizes his tribe to battle, and before leaving his home to go to war against the Ammonites, Yiftach makes a vow to God. It's here I'm going to ask you to open your source sheet. Let's learn together the verses of the Tanakh, Judges chapter 11, Shavitim Perikir Aleph, Pasuk Lamed, Judges 11 verse 30. I'm going to read and translate. And Yiftach bowed a vow to God, and he said, If you will indeed deliver the children of Ammon into my hand. Next Pasik, next verse, Pasik Lamar Aleph. Shaftim Yura Aleph Lamir Aleph, Judges eleven thirty one. If you deliver the enemy into my hand, for Vahya Hayotzi Ashayatzi mitalsi se vesi likrassi bishuri bishalub ibn amun vahuya la di noi vali si you it will be that whatever comes forth from the doors of my home towards me when I return in peace from fighting the children of Amon shall be dedicated to God and I will offer him up as a burnt offering to the Almighty. Yiftach says whatever comes out of the doors of my home when I return from this successful battle hopefully, hoping, praying that he will this I'm dedicating to God as an offering. What happens? Yiftach goes to battle against the Ammonites. He triumphs. He deals the Ammonin a lethal blow and he restores peace to the region, rescuing and saving untold numbers of Jews. Yet, when he arrives home, he discovers the tragedy and the stupidity of his ill-fated vow. Someone comes out of his home to greet the war hero, Yiftach, with music, with dancing, with drums, and this is not an animal who he perhaps speculated would come out, this person did not know about his vow. It's his one and only child. It's his daughter. The Tanakh continues the story. Judges 11, verse 34. Yiftach came to the mitzvah to his home, and behold, his daughter was coming out towards him with drums and with dances, and she was an only child he had from her, neither a son or a daughter when he saw his daughter coming out of the home she was the first one to come out of the home as he returned from war he tears, he rents his clothes and he says alas my daughter, you have made me fall and you have become one of those that trouble me I have opened my mouth to God and I cannot go back she says to him, my father, you open your mouth to God, do to me according to that which was issued from your mouth, fulfill your vows since God has done for you vengeance from your enemies, from the children of Ammon. And then she says to her father, she says to her father, let this thing be done for me. Now listen to her words. Refrain from me two months. Leave me alone for two months. And I shall go and wail upon the mountains. And I shall cry over psulai, over my virginity, and I and my companions, my friends. We will cry together over my Fate. That's what she tells her father. Two months. I need. And he says, Go. He sends her away for two months. She goes with her friends, with her companions, and she cries over her virginity upon the mountains. At the end of two months, the daughter of Yiftach returns to her father, and here the verse says, and I quote, And he did to her his vow which he had vowed. He fulfilled her vow. She had not known any man. She has not been intimate with a man. And this was a statue in Israel. And the story concludes, verse 40, From year to year, the daughters of Israel went to lament, to cry, the daughter for the daughter of Yiftach the Giladite, four days a year. Four days out of each year, there was some tradition, some ritual, where daughters of Israel went to cry, to lament the daughter of Yiftach from Gilad for four days during each year. This is the story. Wow. It's very emotional. You can start crying when you read the story. You're scratching your, your forehead. Like, what is going on? And the Tanach. Comes close to saying it, but it does not say it explicitly. Did the father murder his own daughter? Did he slaughter his daughter and have her consumed as a burnt offering to God? The Tanakh shies away from that statement. All we saw in verse 39, it was at the end of two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her his vow which he had vowed. But what did this man do to his daughter? And right after that it says, yada ish," And she had not known any man. He did the vow, and she had not been with any man. What happened at the end? What did he do to her? Of course, as you could speculate, there is a huge debate. The great medieval commentators of the Tanakh, Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra, known as Ebenezra, Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi, and Ralbag, Rabbeinu Levi Ben Gershu. These are the three very well-known commentators of the Tanakh. The first is Ibn Ezra ibn Avram Ibn Ezra. He was born approximately 1090 or 1089 and he passed away 1164. So he lives at the end of the 11th century and the beginning of the 12th century, the first time of the 12th century. Radak was born 1160, a few years before Ibn Ezra passed away and he passed away in 1235. Ralbag was the next generation. He was born in 1288 and he passed away 1344. So you have Ibn Ezra, you have Radak, Rabbeinu Dovet Kimchi, and you have Ralbak. These are the classic commentators of the Tanakh. They maintain that Yiftach never thought of sacrificing his daughter in the literal sense. Judaism has always viewed human sacrifice as... A reprehensible abomination as absolutely immoral, horrific, and evil. In fact, did Yiftach not know that Moshe Rabbeinu himself, Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of the Jewish people, the one who gave us the Torah, who gave us Judaism, says that every abomination to God, which he hates, the Knanim, the Canaanites, do to their gods, even their sons and their daughters, they would sacrifice in fire to their gods. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu tells the Jewish people. Would Yiftach not know this? This is I, I just I just quoted a passage from Dvarim, chapter twelve. So therefore, it was embedded in the DNA of the Jewish people and their heritage and their faith that human sacrifice, children sacrifice, was something absolutely unacceptable. Moshe Rabbeinu told them this is something that God loathes. He despises. The Tanakh frequently condemns in the harshest of terms the horrific practice of many pagan cultures to sacrifice their children to their gods. It's unknown today by many of us, but this was a very common practice in pagan cultures to take a child and sacrifice this child to God. It was the very famous idolatry known as Moilach, where there was a fire burning and they would actually put the child, the oldest child, one of the children through the fire as a sacrifice and the priests would stand by and drum do a drum roll very very loud so that the parents would not hear the wailing it's hard to say the wailing of the children and their hearts be aroused in compassion these were horrific horrific practices that the tanakh that jewish faith condemns not only condemns you know partially but condemns in in the harshest of, in, in in the harshest of terms How could a Jewish leader then think that this is what God would want? This is how he would be grateful, show gratitude to Hashem for winning a war, by sacrificing, by killing his daughter? Even when God tests Abraham, the one story where we come close to it, Hashem says to Avraham Avinu in Pai we say it in the morning, And asks him to take his only son Yitzchak Isaac. At the last moment, what does Hashem say? Do not lay your hand on the lad and do not do anything to him, not even a blemish or a scar. So if so, what happened? These commentators maintain that Yiftach's original vow, whatever comes forth from my house shall be dedicated to God and I will offer it up as a burnt offering, had a dual intention. If it will be a person who comes out of my house, then I will consecrate this person to Hashem. And if it would be an animal, then I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And the explanation is, if you go back to that verse, you will realize that there is a Vav. And I'm going to ask you to look at that verse again. This is pasuk Lamed Aleph, verse 31. Whatever comes out of my home will be to God, dedicated to God, and I will offer Him as a burnt offering. There is a Vav, Vahali Siyu Ayla. In the Hebrew, the in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew prefix, the letter vav, which precedes the word, "I will offer it as a burnt offering," can always be translated as "and," or sometimes it can be translated as "or." So it could be, "He will be dedicated to God," and "I will offer it as a burnt offering," or it means, "He will be dedicated to God if it's a person," or as a burnt offering if it's an animal. According to this interpretation, Yiftach's daughter was sent to the mountains to live in seclusion, in spiritual isolation, as a woman of God, dedicating her entire life to meditation, transcendence, spirituality. This was the vow, I will give her over to God, a dedicated life, dedicated to heaven, uh, aloof, segregated from the regular entanglement and enmeshment in the physical world. Let's see the interpretation of the Radak in his language. Go to the source sheets, and you'll see Radak. Let's see inside. So, up to Helekir Radak v'halisiyu oyla das razal bazei adua. We know the view of the sages, which we'll soon get to. The second view of the story. For Rabenu Avram Zal, Rabenu Avram ibn Ezra Pirush v'halisiyu havav b'makam oyd Pirush v'haoya la Hashem hekdish em enoyroy lo highly you I says take a look at the verse somebody who beats who strikes his father and his mother and and hurts them blemishes them with with witnesses and warning so they could be they're liable sometimes to a death penalty it doesn't mean father and mother, he means father or mother of means father or mother here too. When it says, whoever comes out of my house, I will dedicate him to God, and as a burnt offering means, or as a burnt offering. Depends if it was a human being or an animal. The Radach says, it's also indicated from the verses that he did not kill her. Why? because the Radak says it was at the end of the two months she returned to her father and he did to her his vow which he had vowed and she had not known any man Yeah, that's what he says now he has not known she has not known what does the text mean when it states she had not had intimacy with any man after he fulfilled his vow if she was dead obviously she couldn't have intimacy it's a very very interesting passage she came back, he fulfilled his vow, which we think would mean he killed her, and no man was with her. Yet, obviously, if she's lifeless, obviously she couldn't get married to a man. So this demonstrates, as De'Radak, that this is actually the description of what he did. He sent her into seclusion, and she never married. So when it says, he fulfilled his vow on her, and the pastor continues, Vihila yada ich. That was the vow. She could not get married. She did not settle down within a regular community and start building a family. She was completely dedicated to spirituality and transcendence. I guess some type of Jewish nunnery. And she never settled down as a married woman. This is what Durabak says. Durabak has a second tremendous proof. Very strong textual proof to this. What is it? What does she do after she hears about the vow? She says to her father, let this thing be done for me. Refrain from me for two months. I will go, wail upon the mountains, and I will cry over what? Over my psulai, over my virginity. Me and my companions. And that's what she does. Why is she not crying over her life? Which will soon come to an end. It seems that there was no vow to sacrifice her, but rather her freedom to be able to get married, to be able to have a relationship with a man, build a family, this is what was taken from her. These are the textual proofs from the verses that the Radak brings to prove his interpretation. And that's why he says, That's why the Tamach doesn't say, He made her a sacrifice. It should have said, She came back and he made her an oiler. He sacrificed her as a burnt offering. That's the natural language of Tanakh. It doesn't say that. It says he fulfilled his promise. This means she was a parush. He had her segregated from the physical world. This was his vow, dedicating her to spirituality, to the divine. This is the meaning of the verses when you read them according to their literal interpretation. And then he adds, if the sages had a tradition that is not hinted, that is not uh, presented and displayed in the literal reading of the verses, we should accept it. This is Deradak. So according to Deradak's view, for two months, she mourned for a life that she would not live. because She mourned for a family she would not have, for the love of a man she would not meet for the type of life she might have imagined that will not be materialized. Following this, Yiftach's daughter lived a life of celibacy, celibacy of isolation, some Jewish version of nunnery, which we know is usually not a Jewish thing. And as we shall see, how heavily chastised Yiftach was for bringing upon his daughter this completely un-Jewish fate, and he was severely punished. We'll get to that in a few moments. But this is the interpretation of the Adak, their Al-Bag, as we said the first one, the Ibn Ezra. Maybe one way of understanding his motivation to make such a strange vow is that the enemy was Amon. He was trying to defeat a nation that descended from Light. Do you remember where Amon came from? Light had two daughters. And after the destruction of Zdaim, they ended up in some cave. And the two daughters felt that there will be no continuity. Their father will die and they're the only ones and the human race will come to an end. And they got their father drunk and they had relations with their father. Both of them had babies. There was the baby Moab and the baby Amon. And these became the fathers of the two nations in the Middle East, Moab and Amon. So the first boy, the Amon, was the product of incest, of Lloyd's daughter getting her father drunk and living with him as the other boy, Mayov. Perhaps realizing that the enemy's very core and and, and progenitor comes from incest, Yiftach decided to consecrate his own daughter and keep her away from any form of physical intimacy. Hence, she mourned her virginity, which would be her new fate because she would not get married were and and other other women would then make pilgrimages every year four times a year to cry with Yiftach's daughter that's one way of understanding the story however other biblical commentators disagree the madrish rashi ramban The most famous biblical commentators understand the text to mean, literally, that Yiftach vowed to God that he would sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his home when he returned from battle. And this he did. He talked about Rashi. Rashi is, of course, Rabbi Yitzchak, who lived in France. He was born in 1040, passed away 1105. This yard said, is the 29th of Tammuz. And the Ramban, Nachman, from Spain, who was born 1194 and passed away 1270. According to their interpretation, the story is quite literal. And I'm going to ask you to take a look in your next source sheet, in your next source in the source sheets, in the Ramban. Ramban Vayikra Chavzayin Chavtes, says the Ramban, Valtia, very sharp words. nifta Avram Valisiu Do not be seduced by the vanity of the interpretation of Rabbi Avram ibn Ezra, the medieval commentators wrote very sharply. Don't be deceived by his commentator, by his commentary that Iftak did not mean to sacrifice a person only an animal would be a burnt offering that's not true the The Ramban actually explains the interpretation that he disagrees with. He says, according to the Ezra, he made a vow that if a person comes out of his house first, this person will be segregated from the ways of the world. This person will be perpetually dedicated day in and out to serve God through prayer and through meditation and through gratitude. And when this happened and his daughter came out, he built a special home for her outside of the city a Special structure where she remained in, medita- in, in, in uh, seclusion and isolation, and that's where she lived all of her life. She was not physically connected with any man and she remained bound up in that life. Says this is vanity. This is not a real interpretation. <speaking> in <Hebrew> Saying that I promise that this person will be dedicated to God does not mean this person will be segregated from the physical world. Now he said, according to the law of Torah, a person doesn't have the right to impose a vow on somebody who comes out of his home that this person should be segregated, just like he has no right to say that this person is going to become a burnt offering. The Ramban says this doesn't even make sense, because if this is the case, why is her, his daughter going to cry for two months about her virginity, this seems completely immodest, inappropriate, and, and every year they are coming four days to mourn with her that she's not having physical relations. This is not the way it's done. This doesn't make sense. She was serving God in purity. This whole interpretation is senseless. You have to understand the story literally. Ramban says from the end of the story that from year to year the daughters of Israel are going to lament for this girl, and it means with her because she's alive. He says... If she was alive and well, what are they lamenting all about? Why are they coming four times a year to cry, to cry with her? Something is is strange, is off. And therefore, the Ramban says, follow the literal interpretation that she was actually sacrificed. Wow, now they came crying four days a year. They would cry four days a year for this fate of Yiftach's daughter, for this horrific, tragic, absurd story they would cry. This is how the Ramban learns it, Rashi learns it, Medrash learns it. Now the rabbis in the midrash are naturally aghast horrified by this morally dis- by this behavior of yiftach first he was not bound whatsoever by the vow that he made as it clearly transgresses the rules of the Torah can i make a vow that i'm going to murder another person can i even make a vow that i'm going to steal from another person can i make a vow that i'm going to put you into seclusion these are vows that are <laughs> you can't even make such a vow I can't even make a vow that I'm gonna eat non- kosher food it doesn't mean anything in Jewish law it's called mas you're making a vow that violates terror second of all I can't make a vow about another human being even if it would be something permissible I can vow that I will never eat cheesecake again I didn't make such a vow it may not be such a bad idea but I can make such a vow at least for a year I can't make a vow that my child will never eat cheesecake again, or that you, my friend, will not eat cheesecake again. That's ridiculous. Third, according to Torah law, a human being can't be a sacrifice. So the entire vow is senseless. It it, it does The whole concept doesn't apply. A human being as a sacrifice is a non-existent reality in Jewish law. That's why the Midrash says, the next source, (inaudible) Midrash Tanchumah Bechakaysay, Rabbi Yoichan and Rabbi Shimon Ben Lachish, Rabbi Shimon argue. Rabbi Yechiman says, The father of Yiftach had to give a monetary contribution to the temple. A monetary contribution to the sanctuary. Because when you give, there is a concept called Erkin, which means I can dedicate the value of somebody, myself, my child, my friend, a stranger, to God, and you give a monetary contribution. He wasn't obligated to give a penny to the sanctuary. Why? Because to say that you're going to sacrifice a human being is is, is, is completely irrelevant. Like you say you're going to sacrifice a video camera. You're going to bring a video camera on the altar and sacrifice It's a joke. It doesn't mean anything. So the whole vow was senseless. It doesn't even have to give a monetary contribution. Number four, even if the vow was bounding, even, there's a process in Judaism known as ha taras Ataris Nadara means you can null almost any vow. According to Jewish law, if one makes a vow, he or she is obligated to fulfill it. But they may nullify the vow by going to a Jewish court, and when the Jewish court could discover that the vow was based on misinformation or a lack of awareness of the ramifications, they can nullify almost any vow in the world. We have the famous story of Rabbi Akiva, right? His father-in-law. Kalba Savu was a very wealthy man. He vowed that his daughter, Rachel, when she married a peasant, an ignorant peasant named Akiva, a shepherd, and he hoped that his daughter would marry Krem Dalla Krem, he made a vow that his daughter and his son-in-law should never be able to benefit from any of his assets. Later, Rabbi Akiva becomes the greatest sage of the generation. And Kalba Savuah Kalba Savuah wants to nullify the vow, and how is it done? It's done by simply asking him this question. If you would have known that this son-in-law was a different type of character, would have you made the vow? No, in other words, it was based on misinformation, miscalculation. You nullify the vow. So besides the first three questions, number one, you can make a vow to do something that is forbidden by the Torah. Number two, you can't make a vow about another human being. Number three, the very terminology of the vow is senseless. Number four, you could nullify every vow. If you would have known that your daughter would come out of the house, not an animal, would you make such a vow? Absolutely not. So why did Yiftach follow through with the vow? Even if we accept the first interpretation, he did not slaughter her. Rather, he made a vow that his daughter remained secluded and isolated. It was still a worthless vow, a meaningless vow. Certainly, if he vowed to offer her as a sacrifice, why did he go ahead with it? The Midrash relates the story from behind the scenes. And it's quite a story. And I want you to look inside for your next source. Midrash Rabbah Bereshis, Rabba Rabbah Samachimah, Midrash Rabbah Bereshis, section 60. And also Midrash Tanchuma Bechok Let's see inside. The high priest at the time was Pinchas. Pinchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, the great nephew of Moshe, he was alive. I don't understand, the high priest was Pinchas, he was a great scholar, he was a holy man. Couldn't Pinchas nullify the vow, had Yiftach consulted with Pinchas, the grandson of the great high priest Aaron Akayin, he would have been informed of his error. Pinchas could have immediately nullified the vow, and that would have been the end of the story. So what happened? Says the Medrash, Pinchas Amar Pinchas said, Hutzarich ani Pinchas said, Pinchas said, I should go to Yiftach, he needs me, let him come to me. I'm the high priest. I'm the greatest uh, scholar among the Jewish people. The Yiftach, I'm I'm the greatest general of the Jewish people. I should go to Pinchas. He should come to me. In between this negotiation, he says, you come to me. He says, you come to me. The girl is lost. Both were punished for the blood of Yiftach's daughter. Yiftach was punished very badly. What happened? Limbs were falling off of him. He lost many of his limbs as he would travel. His limbs crumbled; they fell from his body, and they were buried right there. This is how he ultimately died. Yiftach Gilad Gilad El Gilad. It says Yiftach died in the Book of Judges. He died and he was buried in the cities of Gilad. You're not buried in cities; you're buried in one city. But the fact is that his limbs crumbled and therefore he was buried in many cities. Pinchas lost his divine inspiration. He lost his divine inspiration, his Ruach HaKadosh that he had for so many years. It was all lost. So what happened here, the Midrash says, is an incredible, incredible story. Yiftach was too arrogant to travel to Pinchas to receive guidance. I'm the general of the forces of Israel. I should go to him, let him come to me. And Pinchas felt he should not travel to Yiftach. I am the high priest. How can I go to an ignoramus? Yiftach was considered a brute peasant. Let him come to me. As a result, the poor girl is lost. And both are punished severely. Pinchas loses his divine inspiration. Yiftach suffers from a terrible, terrible illness where he's losing many of his limbs. Here, it's worthwhile to note the interpretation of Rabbi Yosef Chaim the Ben Chai, chief rabbi of Baghdad, Iraq, Iraq, who died in 1909. Rabbeinu Yosef Khan, known as the Ben Chai, And he says that Yiftach did not notify Pinchas why he was summoning him. Had Pinchas known the reason and still not come, he would have been a direct accomplice to the murder of an innocent girl. Rather, Yiftach didn't want to embarrass himself in the presence of anyone, so he did not transmit the message to the high priest why he needs him to come. I need you to nullify my absurd and foolish vow. Pinchas, not knowing that somebody's life was at stake, refused to come to Yiftach. He felt that the honor of the office demanded that Yiftach should come to him. He did not know that this was an issue of life and death. He thought Yiftach needs some advice. Yet, this too was hubris, This too was arrogance. Even if you are in a a high priest, never let it get to your head. This type of arrogance can ultimately cause untold suffering. Leaders must always retain a profound sense of humility. And you're dealing here with Pinchas, who by all counts is considered a great, great, great human being, as we discuss at the end of Parshish Bullock, at the beginning of Parshish Pinchas, who he was, what he accomplished, what God said about him, and yet... He is found guilty, even if indirectly, for what happens to this daughter of Yiftach. Either according to the first interpretation, where she becomes a celibate and a spiritual meditator, or certainly according to the second interpretation, where she actually loses her life in this in this horrific and this in this tragic story. Yiftach, of course, is punished very heavily, much worse than Pinchas because of what he did and how he behaved afterwards where he could not get himself to go to Pinchas and humble himself and seek guidance and mentorship of what to do under these circumstances now we are still left completely dumbfounded and startled is this a father? I mean what is happening here? but at last We are beginning to get a partial picture, which we still have to complete somewhat. Yiftach made a foolish vow, a rash vow. He was excited. He wanted to give a nice promise to God. He said, whoever comes out of my house, when I come back, I'm going to dedicate this being to God. And he's going to become a burnt offering. Granted, this was a rash vow. It was, it was a foolish promise to make. You don't vow that the first thing that comes out of your house will be sacrificed. You just don't do that. You know, as they say. Yet, he acted impulsively. Granted, we sometimes act impulsively. Now, when the vow turned out not only to be foolish, but tragic, horrifically tragic, he refused to get down from his high horse, to come down from the tree. He refused to listen to logic, to reason, to his conscience, to the voice of justice. The Midrash relates that his own daughter pleaded with him that God loathes human sacrifice, that this cannot be what Hashem wants. No moral Jew in history ever sacrificed his child as part of his religion. She says Yaakov vowed he would give from all that he has to Hashem. Did he sacrifice a child? He had lots of children to sacrifice? Never. Chana, Chana, she told her father, dedicated her son to God. Did she sacrifice him? Never. Why would you? These are the questions that this interesting daughter, educated daughter of Yiftach, asks her father, and I want you to see them inside. Open up the next source. Medrash Tanchumah Bechukhaisah. Kibin The daughter turns to her father when he wants to bring her as an offering and she starts weeping and she says, My father, I came out from the home with joy to greet you. And you slaughter me? That's how you pay me back for coming out to greet you with drums and with dancing? Did God write in the Torah that the Jewish people should sacrifice human souls to him? It says in the Torah, in the beginning of Leviticus, you can offer an animal. It doesn't say, mina beheba, mina boker, not from a person. And you know what he answers? Marla, he says to her, Biti, my daughter, I promised, I made a vow to God that whoever comes out of my house will become an offering. Can every person who makes a vow not pay up for his vow? This is his counter-argument. I made a vow, I'm a man of principle, I'm a man of faith, I'm a man of honesty, I'm a man of righteousness, I have to fulfill my vow. Will you imagine this notion that a person makes a promise to give money? And then he says, eh, I don't have to. What do you see in this argument between a daughter and Yiftach? He's arguing with his daughter that he has to sacrifice her. Why? Because his vow to God trumps the value of her life. Wow. Wow. That's what he tells him. In righteousness, he doesn't say, I'm a murderer, I'm a brute, I'm a beast, I'm a barbarian, I got no morals, I got no conscience. No. He says, I'm going to set a precedent. The precedent is going to be you make a promise and you don't fulfill it. How can I set such a precedent? And she continues. She doesn't let it go. She says to He says to him, Yaakov made a vow to God in the beginning of Ayat's, whatever I have, whatever you give me, I will tithe to you. God gave him twelve sons. Where's the tithing? Take one of the boys and sacrifice him to God. Never. Money? Yes. People? You don't sacrifice shamal Chana couldn't have children. The beginning of Samuel. And she promises God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to God. She names him Shmuel because he's borrowed from Hashem. Does she sacrifice him? No. She brings him to Eli. She brings him to the sanctuary in Shiloh. He's raised in the environment of the sanctuary and he ultimately becomes the greatest prophet of Israel. equal to Moses and Aaron. She doesn't sacrifice him. These are all the arguments she tells her father. And he does not listen to her. In his rashness, in his stupidity, in his cruelty, in his absurdity, He believes that keeping his vow surpasses and is more important than the life of his child. According to the second interpretation, or according to the first interpretation, is more important than his his child having an integrated life with the community, having the permission to get married and to live as part of society. Rather, her spiritual seclusion, based on his vow, is more important than anything else, including her own welfare and future. What is one of the great lessons the rabbis derive from this story? You see the next source? Metrash Tamchuma B'chukhaysay. Take a look. Im adam tzadik, va'afal pisho tzadik, ve'ein he'osik b'tayra, e'ein b'yod he'klum, el'apri tzadik, e'chayim zutayra. Shem etayk shu b'n tayra, hu'lomad ha'eich le'keach nefashas. Shememar b'le'keach nefashas chacham. Shem yodur l'arich nefashas, hu'lomad min ha'tayra eich o'ysa. The man is saying something fascinating. Righteousness, piety, religiosity, zeal, passion for God. Without Torah, without perspective, without divine wisdom, without seichel, without the guidelines of Torah, can become a very destructive force. Religion and piety and zeal and passion and spiritual gusto and enthusiasm, without wisdom, without perspective, without the guidelines of Torah, can become not only worthless, but dangerous. When religious people are fools, they become lethal. Religion can become an instrument for destruction physical emotional psychological spiritual and it's sometimes the most dangerous form of destruction because it speaks in the name of the ultimate authority it doesn't only speak in the name of my own uh, moods or my own addictions and my own temperament and my own cravings no if tells his daughter i'm going to set a precedent not to listen to God's commandment that one ought to fulfill his or her vows and execute them? You want me to violate my sense of ethics in such a powerful way? (laughs) You would think she was saying something foolish. When people use God to justify their stupidity, their rashness, their cruelty, their ignorance, even if in their mind they are so holy, it becomes dangerous faith must come with Torah which encompasses reflection, study education reason, logic when religion demands the suspension of sane thinking, critical thinking thoughtfulness, inquiry fear it that's what the Medner says, fear it Yiftach was trying to be a big tzaddik and he ended up doing something cruel and that's according to both interpretations Yitzchak could have also gone to the high priest to nullify his vow, but his arrogance would not allow him to do it. How can you be so arrogant as to allow your daughter to lose either her life or her future? How? The combination of zealousness, arrogance, and suspension of thinking is the essence of the story. When people become so obsessed with their way of thinking, when they become obsessed with their own inner pompousness, ego, insecurity, and religious zeal, they can end up destroying that which we thought they loved most. So whatever interpretation we choose in this story, the message becomes clear. And when religious zeal is not coupled with deep critical thinking, with wisdom, perspective, with humility, with Torah, a man can destroy his own child, thinking he's doing the right thing, fulfilling God's vow. This is the conclusion in the midrash. Take a look in the next source, midrash Tanchuma parshas Bchul All the midrash says he slaughtered his daughter, and God is crying and screaming. The divine inspiration, the divine spirit, is crying. As Yiftach fulfills his tragic vow, God is crying. Did I ever ask anybody to sacrifice a human being? The Pasuk in Yirmiya says beautifully, God says, I never commanded, I never spoke, it never ascended into my heart. I never told Avram to slaughter his son. I told him to bring him up and then take him down, and I never told Yiftach to sacrifice his daughter. That's how the Medrash interprets the words of Jeremiah. It's here. We're. I introduce to you finally a Kabbalistic, Interpretation to the story, and from there we come to our practical lesson. The Kabbalistic, the Kabbalists often look at history in terms of reincarnations. And here I'm going to quote from a very famous Kabbalist, great rabbi of Italy, the Chida, Rabbeinu Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who lived in the 18th century in Italy, and he really traveled uh, to numerous Jewish communities in the world. And I am going to read one piece here of the chidah. I'll put it also in the source sheet. It's not there in the source sheet yet. I forgot to put it in this piece, but I'll put it there later when we post it so you can read it. This is from the chidah who's quoting the Arizah. You have it the chidah in his work. Dvashlofi, let her pay, and also Chaymas Anach in the name of the Holy Arizal. This is what he says: Yiftachaya Nitzutz Zimri, Ubitoy Nitzutz Ooh, Do you remember the story at the end of Parshas Balak? The daughters of Midian come out, and they begin enticing Jewish men in mass. To start committing adultery and engaging in promiscuous relationships and worshiping the famous pagan idol of the Midianites and the Moabites, known as the Baal Peor. And in the middle of that process, Zimri, who was the leader of the tribe of Shimon, engages in public relations and promiscuity with a woman named Kozbi Basur. Her father was a governor, a leader in the tribe of Midian. And Cosby was a princess. This was a very aristocratic family. And she was sent to entice and publicly demoralize the Jewish people. Zimri is the leader of Shimon. And they publicly engage in a relationship to the point that everyone is weeping. Because this is like a a complete breakdown of all the boundaries of morality that the Jewish people stand for. Everybody says, everybody's crying including Moshe Rabbeinu himself, is startled and overwhelmed. Rashi says that Zimri told Moshe, you also married a Midianite woman. Your wife is Tziporah. Don't tell me what to do. And it was Pinchas. Pinchas! who This man Pinchas, who we've been talking about, who took a spear and he killed Zimri and Cosby. And a plague, a pandemic, which spread around and claimed the lives of 24,000 Caesars, and that's when Pinchas is nominated as a high priest comes the Chidon and says in the name of Arizal that Yiftach's soul was a spark of Zimri, the one who had relationships with Cosby. And Cosby, from the Midianite, she, her soul was reincarnated in who? In Yiftach's daughter. In the beginning, Zimri was killed through Cosby because she enticed him. And now Cosby was killed through Zimri. What comes around goes around. Zinri was killed through Cosby because Pinchas killed them both because of what Cosby did. And now they're reincarnated into Yiftach and Dora and Yiftach has his daughter died. And the Chidah says, that is the meaning of the very interesting verse. If you go back to the first source, the first source in our source sheets, when Yiftach realizes what happened, verse Judges 11, verse Lamed he, Tosik Lamed he, he sees her, He tears his garments, and he says, My daughter, kneel, you have made me kneel. He uses a redundant language. You made me fall, you made me kneel. You have become one of those that caused me so much agony. Wow. Says the Chida, this is, there is a Kabbalistic hint over here double, twice, you made me fall. You remember, remember, I was killed through Pinchas because of the way you enticed me. Not that I didn't have choices, but ultimately you enticed me. That's what you did then. And now once again, you are causing me to die again because, as we said, he kills his daughter and he himself suffers a terrible fate where his limbs crumble and fall and fall from him. now let's look at something else who killed Cosby and Zimri who killed Zimri and Cosby Pinchas, Pinchas was the one who killed them and now the second time around everybody has to fix what happened the first time around, now Pinchas can fix it up Pinchas has the ability to fix it, now we have again the same two people and Pinchas can save both of their lives, he can save Yiphach and more importantly he could save his daughter He's the one who killed Zimri and Cosby in the previous reincarnation, but now they came down again. Because in life, what has not been repaired in a previous life, we have an opportunity to repair in this life, but we have to make sure not to continue the cycle of violence and the cycle of immorality and the cycle of stability, stupidity and the cycle of trauma. But Pinchas did not rise to the occasion. This time he did not save Yiftach and his daughter. He did not nullify the vow. And indeed... He just was passive. And Yiftach fulfilled his vow on his daughter. And that's what the Chidah says. Yiftach, the Medrush says, said, I don't want to go to Pinchas. You know why? I'm the greatest general of the Jewish people. That's what we learned before. You remember the previous sources? Says the Chidah, Kabbalistically, what he was saying is, I'm a reincarnation of Zimri. Zimri was a Nasi. He was the leader of Shimon." Pinchas killed me in my previous life. Now you want me to humble myself and go back to Pinchas and get guidance from him? No way! Subconsciously, Yiftach is allergic to Pinchas. You know why? Because the last time he met him, Pinchas killed him. Sometimes we are drawn away from certain people of certain situations because they bring up trauma. And we run away. I don't want to go to Pinchas. I am a Nasi. I am Zip wow subconsciously there are voices in us that are obstructing our path to redemption and he never goes to Pinchas he never has the courage to confront the trauma of the previous reincarnation Pinchas who is a high priest who has Ruch HaKadosh, should understand that it's his role to reach out to Yiftah who is a trauma victim he's suffering from PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder that's the story of PTSD go help the PTSD victim. Just like you fixed the situation when you killed Zimri and Cosby, now you have to go and fix the situation by saving Yiftach and his daughter. That's why Pinchas was so chastised for not rising up to the occasion and helping Yiftach and his daughter out of this crazy, insane dilemma. I'm just going to add one more piece, mystically. And this comes from the Kabbalist Rabbeinu Menachem Azaria of Fano. He was 17th century Italy. Fano is Italy. Ramemi Fano. And he has a Sefer called Sefer uh, Gilgul Neshamas. Sefer Gilgul Neshamas, reincarnations of souls. And in the letter Bayes, in the letter Beys, he discusses this. There is a story in Gemara in Zara, page 18. That Reb Chaminah ben Trad, was one of the greatest Talmudic sages. He was teaching Torah. He was abducted by the Romans. They burnt him alive. They killed his wife. And they sent his daughter into a kubashal shalzoim, they put her into a group, a home with harlots, with promiscuous women whose job was to live a very promiscuous life. And her brother-in-law, Rabbi Meir, who was married to her sister, Bruria, another daughter of emancipated her, he liberated her. It's a fantastic story in Tal Tractate, Avoy page 18. says the Raman that Rabbi Chanina Ben Shradin was a reincarnation of Yiftach and his daughter, Rabbi Chanina's daughter was a reincarnation of Yiftach's daughter. Rabbi Chanina Ben Shradin was burnt as an offering to repair for what he has done to his own daughter generations earlier. And his daughter was thrown into a home of promiscuity, the opposite of what she endured that time when she went into seclusion and therefore she was saved. She did not have to be killed. She did not have to suffer. She ultimately was saved and in fact she did not become promiscuous even though she was cast into that situation just like she behaved in her previous reincarnation and may mayor indeed saved her there are many more details here but this is the key and finally i will finish with the famous er who tells us that Rebchanine ben Trabin, his soul actually was rooted in a very very deep place kabbalistically we know that zimri was a reincarnation of shem and kuzbi was a reincarnation of dina shem had relations with dina he forced her he coerced her but dina really Wanted to stay with them. Because on a deep spiritual level, there was a connection there. Zimri was connected to Shechem. And Dina was connected to Cosby. Cosby is a reincarnation of Dina. And Zimri is a reincarnation of Shechem. And uh, what happens was, they are reincarnated again. This time, Cosby is by the Midyanin. And Zimri is by the Jewish people and the kabbalists explain that uh, <coughs> there was a deep connection there but it was not it was not yet ripe for the actualization of this connection ribkhanin ben radian his soul was trapped in Shechem, and when he had relations with dina dina took out that soul that's why it says in Bereishis in the story of Shem and Dina and VaYishlach, the people of Shem Shem said to Yaakov, the earth is It's very broad for both of us to live here in peace. Surah so Erachayim says Rehobah is acronym Rabbi Khanina Ben Tragion. Rabbi Chanina Ben Tragion's soul was trapped in the soul of Shechem. His spark was there and that's why Shechem wanted Dina because Rabbi Chanina Ben Tragion's soul was so holy it craved the holiness of Dina. Ultimately when they had a connection, physical intimacy, the soul of Rabbi Chanina Ben Tragion emerged. So now we see what's happening here. Zimri is Shechem, he is reincarnated in Yiftach, who is reincarnated in Reb Haninah ben Tragyin. Dina is Cosby, who is reincarnated as the daughter of Yiftach, and then as the daughter of Reb Haninah ben Tragim. So there are mystical, intricate webs here that I did, I did want to mention and point out, even though we're not elaborating so much on it, so you can see how these stories exist on so many different layers. But now, at last, I want to f- conclude the class and discuss this story as a blueprint for our lives. Of course, on the most basic level, we learn from this story about how to view religion, how to view faith, how to view Judaism. When we look at cultures and religions where parents are ready to sacrifice children. They don't think twice about it. It teaches us the Jewish perspective on how horrific that is, how how horrible it is. Religion without Torah, religion without uh, critical thinking, perspective, perception, enlightenment, And clarity of what God really wants from humanity can become the worst evil. Religion can become the epitome of immorality. God can become an excuse for every conceivable evil. And religion with arrogance, religion that lacks humility and the openness and the readiness to go beyond my ego and to listen and to seek guidance and mentorship can turn me into a dangerous human being. That's on the most basic level. I want to suggest a more subtle lesson. Is it possible that the story of Yiftach and his daughter is also a parable? It's also a metaphor for our own story. Is it possible that even if in a less dramatic way, we, some of us, are capable of making similar mistakes, again, in a much more subtle and refined way, do Some of us sometimes sacrifice our children on the altar of our vows that we make to ourselves and God. I make a vow that this is how I'm going to live, this is how I'm going to succeed, this is how I'm going to operate, and that vow becomes an altar that damages some of our children. Sometimes people can sacrifice their children on the altar of a vow that they are going to create a successful business so they could not have the mental space to be there for their children. Sometimes I could sacrifice children on the altar of my vow that I have to make money, that I need fame. Sometimes I have a vow to addiction. And on the altar of addiction, which becomes a vow, I am so connected to it, I am so addicted to it, and the children get sacrificed. Or maybe the vow that I must be in a state of trauma and victimhood and I can't really be empathetic. I can't connect with my children. I can't be loving to my children. Sometimes it's the vow of gluttony or apathy or indifference. Maybe it's the vow that I make a vow and I sacrifice children on the altar of achieving all forms of success but not being there with them as they grow up. Do we sometimes sacrifice our children on another vow And that is the vow that I make to myself that I will never surrender. I become somebody who has an inflexible ego and I refuse to go to Pinchas. I refuse to go to a mentor, to a teacher, maybe to a coach, maybe to a rabbi, a mashpia, a therapist, or a professional or a friend or a confidant who can make some changes in my life, who can make me see things from a different perspective, who can help me nullify my vows, but my hubris, my ego, my arrogance, my narcissism, my stupidity, my trauma, my inflexibility, you can add a couple of adjectives, women, will not allow me to go seek the help from intelligent, wise, caring, empathetic, and wonderful people who can help me see things differently. Is it sometimes true that I sacrifice my children on the altar of my refusal to make changes in a marriage where husbands and wives continue to fight and battle each other just because of their own inner pain and unresolved issues and tension? And who gets sacrificed? Not only they get sacrificed, their children get sacrificed. Sometimes it's stubbornness that husbands or wives or both of them Cling to, to fight and fight and fight and never compromise. Sometimes I see, and you'll forgive me for bringing this up, parents who are separated or who are not getting along or who are getting divorced or want to get divorced or are divorced, and yet their inner need to take revenge from the other becomes so lethal and so tragic that their children become missiles that they use in their battles towards each other. How can a loving father or a loving mother who would die for their child, turn their child into a missile, literally into a weapon to be able to take revenge from your ex or your future ex or somebody who's emotionally an ex, even if you're still married. And when you speak to them, you'll sometimes see that they would do anything for their child. They they spend money that they don't have to send them to camp to buy them new shoes, to put them in the best school, and yet to treat the other parent with civility, with respect, even if they're wrong, and even if you're right, and even if you have a lot of issues. But my vow that I'm going to win, I will triumph over this woman, I will triumph over this man. Blinds me, it blinds me like Yiftach. And with my trauma and my sense of vengeance, The children become literally the karbonis, the sacrifices. Or sometimes children become sacrificed on the altar of rash, impulsive decisions. And then we lack the humility and courage to confess our mistakes. Maybe I made mistakes. Fine. I was impulsive. I was rash. I was ridiculous. Confess it. Be vulnerable. Break down crying. Say, I made a mistake. How do I fix it? You can do that. But Yiftach would not do that. I made a vow, I have to sacrifice you. Do we not sometimes abort our fetuses due to considerations of prosperity, of comfort, of my version of what freedom means? We look at Yiftach's daughter today and we say, who can even think of this? But I ask you today, Don't we see in our culture where mothers, mothers who sacrifice everything for their children, have redefined abortion as freedom. Abortion is freedom. And I'm not talking about a situation where mother's life is in danger or similar very serious situations. That's too a lesson from the story of Yiftach's daughter. And what about something else do we sometimes not practice? our own form of child sacrifice, even if in an abstract and very subtle way? Do we not sometimes sacrifice our children on the altar of things that we consider sacred, even if it deprives them from what they need? I have to ask myself these questions if I am to be a good, decent, compassionate father. Sometimes there are parents, who will watch their children be sacrificed, but they made a vow to themselves or to others. Maybe they're afraid of conformity. Maybe they're afraid of what people are going to say. Social conformity sometimes causes people to sacrifice their children on an altar. Sometimes I will do something with my children or for my children that is not good for them. In fact, it can hurt them. And this goes one way or another way. Sometimes I'm too strict and sometimes I'm too permissible. Sometimes I demand this behavior and sometimes I don't demand any behavior. And in both of these situations, I may be sacrificing my child because of my inability to face my own issues and do what is appropriate in order to help this child become the diamond that God entrusted to me. Let me conclude with a story. The second Chabad Rebbe, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe was a Jew known as Reb Doiv Ber. They called him the Mittler Rebbe. He lived in the same house as his father, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. His father lived on the top floor and the son, Rabbi Doiv Ber, lived on the bottom floor. One night, the Mittler Rebbe Reb of Ber was sitting in his room deeply engrossed in the study of Torah, And in the same room, his youngest child slept quietly in a crib. Suddenly the baby rolled out of the crib onto the floor and he began sobbing. But his father, who was the babysitter, was so immersed in his contemplation and his learning, he did not hear anything. He simply was in another world and he continued studying. His father, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, the founder of Chabad of of Liadi, was sitting in his apartment on the upper floor, also learning. He was also immersed in study, but he nonetheless heard a baby crying. So he runs downstairs. He comes into his son's home and he sees his son is sitting and learning and the baby is on the ground crying and the altar lifts up the baby, soothes the child, caresses him, relaxes the baby until the baby calms down, falls asleep in his holy arms and the Alter Eber places the baby back in the crib. After he rocks the baby back to sleep, the Baal al returns to his studies. A while later, he calls in his son. He didn't do it immediately, he did it a while later. He calls in his son, and he told them these words. He said, one must never be so immersed in his learning that he does not hear the cry of a child. Never ever be deaf to the k'ol yeled Baikha to a child who is crying. Even if you are immersed in the deepest secrets of Torah, even if your entire soul and brain and mind and heart and body are completely submerged in the divine ecstasy of Torah, but if that learning is causing you to become deaf to the cry of a child then something is wrong. Something is amiss, my dear son. So, it's true about all of us in our own way. When religion or any type of deity, when our own conditions, when our own limitations, when our own holiness makes us deaf to the sound of a child crying, we must remember That we may be worshipping a God created in our own image, rather than a God who creates us in His image. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Let us go to the questions now. I'm going to start off with the website. Let's see if there are questions here. You could post your questions on the website, on the yeshiva.net, or in the chat. Let me begin with the website here. Okay. 11 questions. Here we go. Since Pinchas had Ruach HaKadosh, how come he didn't know why Yiftuch was summoning him? question, And the answer is Ruach HaKadosh does not mean that I know everything about everybody. Ruach HaKadosh means that I can be a conduit for divine inspiration. So things that I'm teaching, that I'm communicating... Are not just flawed or erroneous ideas, but rather my antennas are open, they're transparent, so I could be a conduit for divine Wisdom. Really, there is divine inspiration everywhere. Because God's energy vibrates through the cosmos every single moment. In every leaf, there is Ruach In every frog, there is Ruach In every pebble, there is Ruach We see in Parashashas Chukavs, you know this story, remember the story, God said that the Jews could have learned from the stone how to serve God, from the rock. And everything there is Ruach the, the The problem is transparency. Pilchus was transparent, he could be a conduit for it, but it doesn't mean that he necessarily knows the story of every single person unless God revealed it to him. Great question. why could he be Mater Nedir? And if she would be a Nazira, she could marry a Nazir. <laughs> so first of all, she wasn't a Nazira, that's the point. He can't make <laughs> he, he can't make your daughter a Mishnah and Nazir, you can't make your daughter a Nazir. She wasn't, she couldn't be a Nazir. Number one, he he didn't have the right. She has to do it. If she wants to do it, she can do it. Second, a Nazir is allowed to get married. A Nazir is just not allowed to cut their hair, they're not allowed to drink wine or eat grapes, and they're not allowed to contaminate themselves to the death, but they're allowed to get married. Number three, he could have been Matir Nadir. That's the tragedy. He should have gone to Pinchas to nullify his vow. But, the issue of her marrying a Nazir is irrelevant. First of all, you could marry a Nazir, be married to a Nazir, even if you're not a Nazira. <laughs> and a Nazira could be married to a person who's not a Nazir, and conversely. I see it's hard for you guys with the source sheets. If you look on top of the video, on the yeshiva.net, it says source sheets, where below the video, there's source sheets in a PDF. So that's how you find the source sheets. Okay, let me just refresh... We'll get to the next questions. Okay, next question. Doesn't it say in Gemara, Yiftach B'deireh Kishmul B'deireh? The Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, page 25, that Yiftach B'deireh Kishmul, that Yiftach in his generation is like Shmuel in his generation. And the Gemara continues, that even though Yiftach was a the Shabakalim, even though Yiftach is considered a brute peasant, and the lightheaded of the lightheaded still, if he was a leader at that time and he was committed to God one has to respect him this is of course before he sacrificed his daughter once he sacrificed his daughter according to the interpretation especially that he killed her everything changes and that's why he was punished so severely but the point of the Talmud was that a leader in every generation has to be respected even if relative to Shmuel he is so flawed But nonetheless, as long as he is committed to do God's will to the best of his capacity, he deserves respect. But the Gemara itself over there calls him a Kal Shabakalim, which means that he was not of the highest uh, spiritual order. I wish you all a meaningful and inspiring and beautiful week. Thank you very much for joining us. Next class will be Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m. Also, be a class Thursday evening. Bye bye, take care, and that's This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net donate.